My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode three of season five of the 21st Century Creative. This week, I have a really special interview for you. For one thing, it was recorded just down the road from me in Bristol, in a really inspiring setting, at the home of the Department of Small Works, surrounded by antique printing machines. There, I had a fascinating conversation with Nick Hand, the founder of the company, about the creative things they're doing with letterpress printing. He also shared what he's learned from his many conversations with artists and craftspeople he met on cycling journeys around the British Isles and along the Hudson River in the United States. It's a wonderful conversation in its own right, as Nick is really knowledgeable about all sorts of interesting things. And for me, it's also a reminder of happier times when I could travel into central Bristol and sit down in a workshop and have a cup of tea and a conversation with a couple of people from outside my household without giving it a second thought. Hopefully, it won't be long before I can return to the Department of Small Works and take part in one of Nick's letterpress printing workshops. But for now, I hope this conversation can be a reminder to all of us of the simple joy of being out with other people in a place where real things are made with real machines and materials and with real love of the craft. On a personal note, last week I told you about the new company I've been working on behind the scenes since last season. Another project I've been working on is the paperback edition of my latest book, 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives. This book partly grew out of this podcast, where I share insights in the first part of every episode. And in turn, these insights grew out of my coaching practice, from things I found myself saying over and over to coaching clients over the past two decades and a bit. And I have to say, my designer, Irene Hoffman, has surpassed herself with this book. She's taken the 21st century creative logo and turned it into a stunning book cover as well as doing a beautiful job of designing the interior of the book with title pages for every insight. So it's a great book to have handy if you want a little inspiration and encouragement in your day. Readers tell me you can pick it up and read one or two chapters at a time and get a lot out of them. It's also a lovely book to give the creative person in your life as a present. So that's 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives, Currently available on Amazon, shortly to be available at your local bookshop. Staying on the subject of books, I recently took delivery of my author copies of the Russian edition of my book, Motivation for Creative People. It's the second of my books to be translated into Russian and published by the Moscow publisher Man, Ivanov and Ferber. They translate a lot of English language, business and personal development books So it's great to have another book in their catalogue. And I'm already getting some nice emails and tweets from Russian readers telling me it's helping them find some extra motivation for their creative career at a challenging time for us all. I know from the stats that we do have some listeners in Russia, so if that's you and you would like to check out the Russian edition of Motivation for Creative People, you can find it at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash Russian motivation. Okay, that's it for my news for today. Before we get to the interview with Nick Hand, I'd like to say a few words about what the effect of the pandemic means for us specifically as creatives and how we can make a creative response to the current disruption. The normal rules are suspended. 
This is something I've found myself saying over and over to coaching clients in the past few weeks. For some of them, it's because they're being challenged to reinvent themselves in the face of the pandemic. They have literally been forbidden to do their normal work, such as making a live-action film or performing on a stage or running workshops or exhibiting in galleries. So they're having to come up with something new, in some cases because the survival of their business depends on it. It's a massive and unexpected and unwelcome challenge. I've been hugely impressed by the way they've risen to the task with courage and creativity and I'm delighted for the successes they've achieved with their new ways of working. If any of us had a choice in the matter, we would wish this pandemic had never happened. With people dying every day, everything else pales into insignificance. Radiating out from that epicentre The economic fallout is also severe and just beginning. I would never wish on anyone the fear and pain of having their livelihood under threat, especially through no fault of their own. And it's also true that we can grow stronger by overcoming a challenge. And it's only natural for us to look for the silver lining to such a vast and dark cloud. Because the suspension of the normal rules of society is also opening up possibilities that were not there before. Several clients have told me they have been grateful for not having to get on aeroplanes or go out to meetings or hustle for new business all the time. They can stay at home and focus on their creative work and they are getting a hell of a lot done. Day by day, They're experiencing the fulfillment of moving forward on a long-cherished dream. And they have the satisfaction of knowing that by creating this new work, they're laying a foundation for their future success. Another unspoken rule that's changed recently is that failure is no longer personal. If you're the owner of a business that is forbidden to trade, or an employee of one of these companies, then your livelihood is under threat through no fault and no actions of your own. So don't be too proud to ask for help, whether in financial terms from any government support or in emotional or practical terms from friends and colleagues. And when it comes to the arts and the creative industries, the suspension of the usual rules gets curiouser and curiouser, as Alice would say. Back in season two of the 21st Century Creative, I invited you to play the game you want to play. Because every creative industry and every art world has a set of unspoken rules of the game that govern the path to success. For instance, the artists who achieve the most fame and critical reputation and whose works are sold for the highest fees are generally not found selling their work on Etsy or their own website. Their work is typically sold through high-end galleries or to private collectors. And any artist who aspires to reach this market needs to understand how this world works and play by its rules. And, of course, many artists choose not to play this game. They would rather have the control and freedom to create and publish and sell their work themselves without worrying what the in-crowd think. So, my advice to clients is always to play the game you want to play, whether that means pursuing gallery representation or a record deal or a book publishing contract or doing it yourself, attracting an audience and selling direct. And. Until recently, the rules of these various games were fairly well established. And if you chose to ignore them, bend them, or subvert them, there was always a risk of consequences for your career. But right now, many of these rules are suspended. They don't necessarily apply. Which means you're free to experiment and try something new. After all, you have the perfect excuse. If you see yourself as a gallery artist, but your gallery is closed, 
and you're curious about expanding your online presence and selling your work direct to buyers, then maybe now could be the perfect time to experiment with Instagram or offering a limited edition of work for sale on your website. If your business is delivering workshops or coaching or consulting in person, then right now you may find your clients are far more receptive to the idea of working with you remotely. If you're a performer or a speaker used to the thrill of connecting with a live audience, you could relieve a lot of frustration and unleash your creativity in a new area by making video or audio recordings and sharing them with your audience. And remember that the normal rules are currently suspended. They haven't necessarily vanished altogether. Right now, we don't know what the so-called new normal will look like. Lots of things will probably go back to the way they were before. But many of them won't. Which means we're currently living in a period of uncertainty, which is also a window of creative opportunity. It's possible to do things differently on a temporary basis as a pandemic project without being restricted by the usual rules. And no one expects it to be perfect. We're all experimenting, all improvising. If you try something and you fail, so what? A few months ago, our situation would have sounded like science fiction. So no one expects perfection. Plus, there's none of the usual pressure to follow through and keep doing it forever. In normal times, for instance, the received wisdom is that if you start a podcast or a workshop series or a YouTube channel or a blog or whatever, you should be prepared to produce it regularly to maintain momentum and build a reputation through consistency. But your lockdown experiment doesn't necessarily represent the future of your career. Maybe you'll want to go back to normality as soon as you can. But maybe your experiment will lead to new discoveries and new possibilities for your future. So, whatever you're having to do to deal with the current situation, find a little time to stop and ask yourself, what rules are currently suspended in my creative field? And what new options does this open up for me? If I decided to create a project with no regard for the usual rules and no pressure to make it perfect or to do it for long, what could I come up with? In my own case, I did something a little different with a new poem I wrote about lockdown by recording it and publishing the text and audio directly on my poetry site instead of sending it off to a magazine or competition. Because whenever I have a poem accepted by a magazine, it takes months before it's actually published. But this poem was about lockdown, and I really wanted people to read it and hear it right now, while the experience is fresh for all of us. So I just put it out there and sent it to my email list, and I was really heartened to hear from so many of you that it resonated with your own experience of lockdown. And so, in the spirit of practising what I preach... And in a departure from the usual rules of the 21st century creative, instead of having an ad break before the interview, the next thing you're going to hear is that recording of my poem. The poem is called Lockdown, and I hope it resonates with your experience of this strange time when the normal rules are suspended. Lockdown. We're cooped up with ourselves, alone together for weeks or months until it's safe to breathe. The virus crosses continents like weather. For now we're stuck here, wondering when or whether we'll get back to our everyday routine. We're cooped up with ourselves, alone together, the death toll rising, falling, like a feather at the mercy of an idle breeze. The virus crosses continents like weather. 
As days drift by, we find new ways to weather boredom, frustration, solitude and grief. We're cooped up with ourselves, alone together, and some of us are at the end of our tether, and some of us are sinking week by week. The virus crosses continents like weather. Has life as normal vanished altogether? Once locked up, can we ever be set free? We're cooped up with ourselves, alone together. The virus crosses continents like weather. One of the big themes of the 21st century creative is something old, something new. Last week, we gazed into the future with Marcus Dusotoy talking about artificial intelligence and the future of creativity. So now we're going to balance things out with a deep dive into the past and the world of traditional crafts and making real things in the company of Nick Hand. Nick is the founder of the Department of Small Works, an amazing company here in Bristol where I live. Because Nick was just down the road, I went to see him in person to record the interview in his workshop, and I was really glad I did. As you'll hear in the interview, the workshop is an Aladdin's cave of printing technology from yesteryear, with printing presses, typefaces, and other gadgets dating back to the Victorian era. So it's a really atmospheric space that I entered with something akin to reverence. We've put some photos of the workshop in the show notes, and there are more on Nick's website, theletterpresscollective.org. So do have a look at those to get a sense of what a magical place it is. As Nick and I talk, you can hear clicking and tapping noises from time to time. That's Ellen Bills, the printer, assembling a block of text by hand, individual letter by individual letter. And the results of Nick and Ellen's work are stunning. The workshop walls and Nick's website are covered in beautiful prints, posters, cards, books and booklets. And Nick's created an amazing business around this, printing work to commission, creating his own products, and running workshops where you can go and learn to print on a letterpress machine yourself. So, once coronavirus has receded and we're allowed to go back to workshops, I shall be attending as a student and printing one of my poems. Another reason I wanted to talk to Nick, and why he's got such a deep knowledge of traditional crafts, is that he's published a trilogy of books featuring interviews with makers of all kinds, who he met while cycling around the whole of Great Britain and Ireland, as well as along the Hudson River in New York State. The people he spoke to included makers of pottery, shoes, sandals, cider brandy, jeans, trousers, whiskey, animation, baskets and sticks. Yes, you heard that last one right. Nick spoke to a member of the UK Stickmakers Guild, so listen out for more details of the noble art of stick-making. So, I was very keen to talk to Nick about the state of traditional crafts and manufacturing in the modern world, about what we can learn from the past, and also how we can combine it with new technologies and opportunities. I was rewarded with a captivating conversation, as Nick shared his stories and what he's learned from the conversations as well as adding some wonderful new words to my vocabulary from the printer's lexicon. So join me on a visit to the Department of Small Works in Bristol in the company of Nick Hand and Ellen Bills. Nick... We are sitting in the most extraordinary room. Um, this is one of the days I wish I'd done this as a video podcast because we are surrounded, dear listener, imagine, if you will, a room full of 
antiquated printing presses, um, shelves of type. I think that's metal. Is that some of it? Is is that wooden type? It some is of wood it? type. There are some type. big blocks of wood type over there. There are all kinds of amazing posters and texts that are the handiwork of said machines and equipment. There's a wonderful smell of, is it ink, that smell, or oil, or a mixture? A mixture of those things, yeah, ink cleaning. It's, it's really quite something. So, uh, Nick, what's it like to come into work surrounded by this every day? Well, it's pretty uplifting, actually. I mean, you never get, you never get tired of it, and um, um, Ellen is in the room with us. Ellen is a young printer. Um, we work together in here. She's in here all the time, and I'm in here not as much as I'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's an amazing place, and it is, um, you know, it's like a, I don't know, if you were a, a wizard, it would be all the materials to make things wizards make, whatever they are, potions. Right, right, you make yeah. magic in here. I'm thinking it's a bit like the Willy Wonka factory for printers. I mean, it's just extraordinary stuff. Yes, it? yes, yes. Well, there is um, a very famous um, piece written by a woman called Beatrice Ward, who was a typesetter in the 1930s, um, I think, and uh, and it talks about this a room like this being like, a chapel and a holy place yeah. and uh, and it is in a way you know it's, it does have that that kind of magic and um, hmm. it does uh, yeah actually that's a really nice description because i did feel a kind of a reverence coming in hmm. for to this and it it's it's kind of preserved but it's not in a museum sense i mean this is all working kit right yes 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 so the oldest bit of kit we have is a an albion press which is a um it was made in 1832, and if you think about 1832, there were no cars on the road, there weren't even bicycles on the road, so that, that press um, was made um, that time ago, that was just after Peterloo, and if you saw wow. the film oh, Peterloo, yeah. it actually had one of these in it, really? um, an Albion press. Gosh. Um, so that's that one over there? Exactly, right? yes. So I will, listeners, I will take a photo of that press, and you will find it in the show notes with with next permission. It's wonderfully grounding as well. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's kind of that elevation and reverence like a chapel, but you really do feel kind of earthed in a place like this. You're, you're walking around, you're, you're picking up real things. It's not, I think there's an iPad over there, but there's not an awful lot of digital kit in evidence. It's very different. What, again, is there something about that whole tactile experience you think that Oh, absolutely, yeah, and and you know the music we play in here is we play vinyl records, and there is um, there's definitely a sort of tactile quality to everything that we make, and and the materials that we use to make, you know, print with. Um, so you know, for example, the wood type you mentioned earlier, you know, some of the wood types are hundred years old, and when you handle it, you you know, I. Every time I handle a, a piece of wood type, I just think, you know, what words <laughs> did this make the first yeah. time it was used a hundred years ago? What are the kind of things? That... And the other thing is that they have kind of marks on them, a bit like us. They have the kind of scars of age, you know, where something's gone slightly wrong with the print or someone's damaged it or it's slightly worn. Um, so just like us, they carry all their kind of scars, but then you learn to kind of appreciate those as well. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's amazing material to work with. Uh, and I think also, um, if you're dyslexic, Alan and I are both slightly dyslexic, and um, you... you um, I remember someone saying, if you use a typewriter or you write by hand, you're going to write quite different things. Well, I think with typesetting, that you're going to... The things that you create will be quite different because you, you feel... You know, you handle every letter, you feel differently about the words that you're setting. Okay, Nick, maybe cast your mind back Mm. to the beginning of your career when Mm. this place was just a twinkle Mm. in your eye. Mm. How did you get your start as a maker? Well, 
So I went to art college, very kind of traditional old school art college in Stafford in the 1970s when I started when I was 16. And uh, I spent a year uh, of that time in a room very similar to this. Um, and I, I kind of have a theory that we try and recreate somewhere that we had our kind of best time in and I mm. certainly had the best time at art college <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I think it must have just been, been in my head and then for the next 20 years I was a graphic designer and I did paste up work there were no computers and then suddenly computers turned up um, like the first Apple Macs whenever it was 80s late 80s early 90s maybe yeah so yeah so computers turned up Whenever it was. When was it, 89? Must have been the yeah, first. late 80s, I think. And I can yeah. remember that we used to have to kind of get loans to buy a computer for like £18,000 or something. And then we had to employ someone because nobody knew how to turn them on or key yeah. stuff in. So, so, yeah, so the second half of my sort of career as a graphic designer was um, with computers. And then sort of towards the end of that time, like, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, I just started sort of going home feeling a bit, not, not kind of feeling like I had a great day. And, and I realised it was because just being on a keyboard and a screen yeah. actually wasn't much fun. Like doing paste up all night wasn't much fun, but at the end of it, you feel like you'd achieved something. Yeah. So I was kind of, uh, anyway, I, I suppose the long shot was I had a kind of uh, classic thing where um, I just felt like I needed to make a change somehow. I didn't know how or where. And um, one of the things I'd started doing was a lot of cycling. Mm-hmm. And I was really, I loved the feeling of being on a bicycle. Like just, just the freedom and energy of being on a bicycle. So, and I was on holiday in Cornwall with Harriet, my wife, and I, um, I was kind of a bit intrigued about living on an island and not knowing enough about that island. So two things happened. One was I was, I was intrigued by how being on an island, I guess if you start at one point on the coast and you cycle clockwise, for example, along the coast, at some point you're going to come back to that point mm-hmm. where you were. So yeah. I was thinking, how long would that take? <laughs> And and where would what would the places be like? And so I became a bit obsessed by this idea of cycling around the coast. And so I that's what I did. Like um, I took three and a half months, which is how long it takes to um, cycle. Um, and in case you're wondering, that it's about four thousand six hundred miles if you start at one point. And you can take in several islands, islands like Arran and the Isle of Wight, they're both 61 miles if you cycle around those islands. So you can add in the islands, many islands, because the islands are fantastic. Who wouldn't want to go on Sky and yeah. Mole and Aran and, yeah. you know, the Orkneys? And yeah. So I realised all these places I hadn't seen, that I really wanted to see, um, while I could still ride a bicycle. So I did that on a bike um, virtually exactly 10 years ago, actually. And... Um, and the other thing was I was a bit intrigued by was spending time on your own because I realised that every day, you know, I'll come in and we'll work with your friends or your, you know, you obviously if you've got a partner, you're with your partner. Yeah. So, um, and I realised that I was kind of a bit intrigued like what it would be like to spend that amount of time on my own. And um, I got a bit worried about it. So I thought I need a project. I need to meet people every day. Uh, okay. Um, and how could I build that into this trip and I start at that time I was doing some work for a company called Harry's I, I designed the catalogue they were a clothing company in West Wales that's right so we had David yeah avid listeners may recall David Hyatt came on the show a couple of seasons ago and talked about founding Howie's so it's nice to make that connection yeah so I knew David at that time and uh, I um I love the sort of language that David and his wife Claire sort mm-hmm. of used within that company. And also I love the fact that, that, well, it's a bit more common now, but at that time, you know, they were 
spent a lot of their money and their energy and their time on things which weren't directly selling clothes, which was quite felt, felt a little bit interesting and unique. So they would yeah. they would meet, you know, um, not just things like skateboarders or BMXers, but also people that made stuff. So I became really intrigued by the makers in particular. Yeah. Um, so I thought I would seek out people that would make make things on this journey and talk to them and um, and record their voice and look at what they do and visit yeah. like I love workshops like you were talking about our workshop. Um, there's nothing better than being in you know a workshop or studio of a maker because again it you know we talked about it being a bit kind of religious almost but I think that's true you know the energy and the spirit in those places whether it's a you know a leather worker in a shed or whether it's um I don't know like someone making jeans in a factory it's um they're incredible you know it's incredible experience I think it's it's always a privilege to be invited in isn't it Mm, it is yeah it is and actually it's really surprising because like you kind of think those places they're there's kind of private temples or whatever but um <laughs> and it is and it feels quite um uh, like like a kind of an honor or a mm. privilege it feels yeah. like a privilege actually yeah. uh, to be in those places and so what did you learn by going in and well yeah so i set off i set off in um may um, 2009 and the uh, first place I went to was Ardman because I live in Bristol and Ardman are in Bristol and um, I went to see an animator and Ardman is phenomenal because they have also um, the other thing I realised was that crafts uh, are everywhere you know craft can be an actor craft can be a singer yeah. a writer a musician but or an animator um so you, you discover these kind of secret hidden crafts in a yeah. way, like modern crafts. Right. And, you know, for international listeners, Ardman is the, one of the pride and joys of Bristol. They, they make the Wallace and Gromit movies. And um, I was really intrigued to see them in your book because it made, it, I almost did a double take. And I thought, well, actually, that is a craft, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, on a recent journey, I, I went to Stratford-Avon and, and I met... Um, a, f- a director of a play and you know plays are full of craft you know yeah. craft in writing craft in you know the costume making craft in the th- you know the stage work so so yeah I mean it, it's really interesting to kind of seek out crafts whether they're kind of new crafts or old crafts and that I think that's really mm. intriguing so what does the word craft mean to you? Well, I'm, I'm personally, my interest is in the people. So I'm really interested in the people. And I love to hear people, uh, you know, like letterpress, what the room we're in there, letterpress um, print shop. You know, the old printers, the printers that come in here, it's... I love to hear what they say, but I'm I, I'm really intrigued by them and what you know their voice and so I really like a bit like you're doing actually with your work giving voice to you know people that don't always have a voice I guess so a lot of people I met on that trip aren't alive anymore not a lot but a few a few yeah. so every now and then I'll get an email or a letter from a relative saying well, you know you you visited my aunt you know 10 years ago sadly she died you know, a couple of couple of months ago and your recording was the only recording of her talking about her work and wow. that's happened wow. several times now you know where um I, I, and at the time i wasn't really aware of the kind of legacy of those recordings um but but it'll be the same with your work you know in sort of 10 or 20 years time maybe someone will talk about me and (laughs) who knows (laughs) but there is there is a real timeless quality and so next books i I heartily recommend they really you've got beautiful photographs and um interviews with the makers and there's a real timeless quality to what they're sharing and you you really do feel wow 
in some cases. You know, you had a storyteller from Northern Ireland and a stick maker from, where was that guy? Suffolk. Suffolk, yeah. right? And you think, gosh, this thing is still going on, but maybe it's, you know, they really are, at, hopefully not the end of a tradition, but it's, it, you know, I remember the stick maker in particular saying that they couldn't get young people to, to, to join the guild of stick makers, which is a wonderful thing to know that exists. Um, but you really do get a sense that you're capturing something very precious that is, could, could be lost. I think that's true. I mean, the stick maker is a really good example because uh, his name was Bill Bontoft and um, uh, I think he was 72 when I met him, maybe. And, um, and so he'll be 10 years older now. And, and he's a lovely character, doesn't do email, so whenever I contact him through email, I'll have to do it through a, his nephew... Yeah, who works for some computer company, and a month goes by, and eventually I get a response and bill. Right. But I, I came across him because um, I was just cycling through his village, and um, uh, he lives in a little uh, wooden bungalow with his wife. And I remember seeing his little um, picket fence, which just had an A5 sign that said "Stick Maker," and. You know, on a bicycle, you're going slowly enough to see that sign. And um, so I stopped and we chatted for a couple of hours. Um, You know, they sent me away with a little packed lunch that they made. (laughs) And and it was just an amazing, lovely experience. And Bill had made sticks, you know, all his life. It was a very traditional Mm -hmm. thing where he collected the willow and... Um, and then you know it would dry out for eighteen months. And he talked about the process, and um, you know, like we were talking about privilege. So it just it was an amazing, really lovely experience, you know. And and I had to kind of get to a campsite, so I was only with him a couple of hours. But it stays with you, you know. And I can yeah. remember quite a lot of detail from um, <clears throat> that conversation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said he's. The other thing is you just get some hilarious things. Like he was getting, he was saying, oh, you know, I'm 72 now, so I've probably only got another 20 years of stick making. <laughs> That's the spirit. <laughs> Which kind of gives you hope, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Gosh, yes. Maybe we've got a little longer to go. Um, and it's, you know, it's a really interesting point about the bike because, you know, I'm an enthusiast for using the internet to, to find interesting creative people all over the world. But... If somebody's not on the internet and, you know, their only kind of advert, if you like, signboard is literally the signboard at the bottom of the garden, then you're reaching people with that bike that the internet's not getting to, is it? Absolutely. And um, I think the couple of things about the bicycle, one is that the slowness, obviously, and we talk a lot about doing things slowly now, it's become a kind of thing. Yeah. But also just the simplicity of it. So if you're if you set off for you know, four months, everything you need is on that bicycle, your life becomes really simple. And for some reason we've got kind of our lives are just complicated. Like I was saying, I've been away for a few days, I've come back. It's kind of mountains of stuff to do. But when you you know, when you set off from a campsite and all you've got is your little recorder, your camera a rough idea of where you want to end up that night. You might bump into someone or you might not. It's very simple. So all those kind of layers of complication just fall away and mm. you just have this little simple task. And uh, and it is an astonishing thing to suddenly um, have this life of simplicity. Yeah. So not content with going all the way around Great Britain... And you went round Ireland as well, didn't you? Well, yeah, I did go round Ireland. That was because I started saying, oh, yeah, I've cycled round Britain. And I had, an, I remember like someone emailed me and said, oh, yeah, you can't say you've cycled round Britain because you haven't cycled round Ireland. So I thought, <laughs> oh, jeez, I'm going to have to do that now. Which wasn't a hardship, but it was, an, uh, uh, yeah, I can tell you as well, it's 1,800 miles to cycle around the coast of Ireland. But Ireland's, again, beautiful country full of amazing people uh, um, I don't believe anyone will go to Ireland and not 
and not combat thinking is beautiful not just yeah. beautiful but the people are pretty beautiful and you know um welcoming mm. and uh, it's an amazing country so yeah so i had to say this guy so you did that asked, and then you did the hudson river as well yeah, well, that was um, my uh, wife was working in New York and um, a publisher in New York uh, had contacted me and said, could we republish your book about cycling around Britain? And I, I had this sort of thought that um, instead of them publishing that book, I could do a, a smaller version. But mm-hmm. I was a bit intrigued by the Hudson. The Hudson is this astonishing river that goes from New York to Canada. <clears throat> and it's 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 so wide like for about 200 miles it's you can hardly see the other side it's a huge river and um very it was very polluted at one point anyway i was kind of and i thought oh i could do that journey and i could meet people and what would that be like um, it was quite a short journey it's only a few weeks in fact but but um so i did that yeah um it just felt like a nice thing to do rather than otherwise I'd have just been sitting in coffee shops and right. flicking through second hand records. And coming back to Bristol, I mean, we're here in the Department of Small Works. How did this place come about? Well, I think having kind of met maybe a few hundred makers of things, um, I suppose I, I, I started thinking about my time at art college and and that coincided with discovering that the last letterpress printer had closed their doors in Bristol. Bristol's a really big print centre mm-hmm. um, and uh, I was a bit, I was kind of a bit concerned about what was happening to the machines and the type and obviously you see type being sold letter by letter in car boot sales so I started asking around and then I I started talking to some of the old printers and I came across um, the M Shed, the M Shed is the local museum for industry in Bristol and the guy there, Andy King, who's a really great fella who curates um, I think probably probably the wrong word but he, he runs part of the museum and he said, well, we've got these old presses and type just sitting in storage. And if you find a space and you involve the public, we'd much rather those things be used than sitting gathering dust. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the start of it, really. And then that coincided with coming across this um, cooperative building that we're in now, which is, happens to be in the middle of Bristol, which is pretty unusual as well. So they, so it was a kind of coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking earlier about um, planning things and you know the energy to make things happen. But yeah. I truly believe there's an alternative, which is just organic, accidental stumbling, mm-hmm. which is what <laughs> I've done here. This yeah. is a result of stumbling along, not quite with any purpose which I believe is not a bad thing. Right. Well, when you look at what's emerged, you're, you're clearly onto something. So what are the main activities you do here? So we do several things. One, one thing we do is we run workshops. So we invite people in, and they can be anyone, really, any, but quite often as well, they're people like poets or mm-hmm. musicians or... Um, uh, can be graphic designers or people that work in advertising or fashion or whatever and, and we show them how to you might hear the little clicking of lead type that's Ellen setting type so we teach them how to set small type lead type which mm-hmm. is generally below an inch yeah. uh, 72 point um, and then uh, wood type above 72 point generally um, and they can make posters and they can make um bookmarks or postcards and, and so these points the same things we see on the word processor when we select yeah times roman 12 point or area or whatever they are yeah exactly based on? yeah so i think mike um was it microsoft someone adopted the point system yeah. for computers which was quite helped us quite a bit because we don't have to explain what, what right it so when when people like me come in and go oh, right okay and i can i can relate to that yeah, yeah. and also things like leading so um, 
on one side of this room there are racks of um, uh, what would you call them pieces of long pieces of lead um, mm -hmm. which is leading and so anyone that works with a computer they're kind of which is most of us I guess um, they're aware of 10 on 12 point helvetical 10 on 12 yeah. point aerial so the difference between 10 and 12 points is two points which is invisible on a computer but here it's a physical piece of yeah. lead um, so that's racks of leading mm -hmm. um, which uh, kind of sits invisibly inside your every computer and it's actual lead is it? it is actual lead yeah well it's um, it's a kind of a little mix of lead and anemone I think is it mm -hmm. anemone? And uh, what's it? Tin. Hey? A tin. Bit tin. A little bit of tin. tin. So it's a little bit of a mix of stuff. So it's kind of pliable and it, it's got a quite a low melting point. So you can make new type or new lead. And we kind of collect it and we spend hours and hours putting it into... Because um, the, the measurements there are called pikers. And pikers are like the multiples of points. So when you get to 12 points, it becomes one piker. Um, so uh, that's the that's a measurement that nobody knows um, right. in the outside world. Yeah. Um, just in our little secret world. Never heard of that. Yes. Mm. Mm. So this is great. I mean, I for one, I'm looking forward. I'm going to come and do a, a workshop and print some of my poems. So people like me can just walk in and learn to type with the old presses. Yeah. What what else do you do here? So we work for, we do a lot of work with poets, musicians, artists, um, the sort of community of Bristol, and we produce posters for them. And, you know, we do record sleeves and, you know, we, we, um, uh, we make little books for people, booklets. Um, we've just, the thing that's in front of us is a Christmas card for um, a creative company in Bristol. Uh, we we do a lot of work with friends who like Heavenly and Caught by the River in London, and we print posters uh, for them. And um, we also print our own things, which we we try and sell on our website. Um, and so and and <clears throat> there's this lovely phrase that I really like called "own the means of production." Yeah, and um, which is a Marxist phrase you have to be really yeah. careful who's in the room when you talk about Marxism <laughs> I've discovered uh, when you say that oh he's good he's good he's welcome on my show <laughs> well he is on my uh, yeah I think he is with a lot of people every now and then you come across someone that goes hmm Marx <laughs> and you go okay and, and uh, so uh, own the means of production so own the means of production means that you know you own your printing press or yeah. you own your sewing machine and you can make anything with that and uh, so uh, so things like this year um, we realised we could make um, playing cards on a particular press mm -hmm. and I've worked out that on this press which is a Heidelberg uh, windmill press a platen press um, we can um, punch we can punch the cards out we can print the cards we can make the box we can punch the box out we can print the leaflet that goes in so we can make all the elements of a pack of playing cards which I got really excited about mm. and then we got together with our friend Jeb Loy Nichols who's a, a country soul singer who lives in mid Wales and he had he made 54 um, little lino cuts of very, um, not always obscure, but some quite obscure country soul singers from three cities in America. Um, and we printed uh, a pack of playing cards, which I was very excited about. And to the point where if we hadn't sold a single pack, I'd have still been very happy about it. And just, just through the joy of being able to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get a real sense here of just a wonderful enthusiasm you have for doing mm. things and then people walk in and they go well because I'm looking at this thinking well okay I want to do something with my poems um, and, and I think there's a so you talk about stumbling across stuff you know that if you you start doing thing and then people show up and then they go well we could do that with it and it doesn't always happen you know sometimes you do stuff and yeah. it doesn't take off but 
it's I think it's got to come from that place of curiosity and enthusiasm for, for doing it, you know, because you want to do it. So one of the themes of this podcast is something old, something new. And clearly you've, you've got the old part covered here. I mean, you're really steeped in the tradition of the technology and the crafts and also the, you know, the, the generations of people who've been practicing um, the various crafts that you talk about. How do you see the relationship between these, these old skills and the new technology and maybe new uh, changes in society that we have these days? What, what kind of relationship do you think? you see that? Well, two things come to mind. One is sort of discovering a new relationship with the old, which kind of makes it new because you're discovering it, you know, so we yeah. get, you know, we get kids who are at art college coming in and so rediscovering it as a new thing in a way. Um, but the, the other thing, I guess, is other letterpress printers, friends of ours who work in a very different way so we have friends who work with laser cutters and work with 3d modeling printing um and their work is um is really interesting so there's this sort of new generation of of printers you know and we tend to work with older material here so we're not a good example of that but there's a couple of things on the wall here from our friends who um, who have, uh, are producing new work in a really exciting way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also because we work with the artists, so we work with, you know, some Bristol artists and um, poets, musicians, artists. And I guess their work rubs off on us a little bit as well. Uh, in that, um, you know, we t- I think we both say it as kind of influenced by you know, who we're working with. So inevitably, I think, yeah. you know, because this was a trade, you know, this was a, this room, it wasn't, it wasn't a craft or it wasn't, it was a trade, you know. And we, we sometimes get old printers coming in and they don't, they don't understand why we spend so much time on quality. They just, <laughs> they just want to knock it out. You yeah. know, they, they, yeah. they were paid by speed and, how quickly they can produce things yeah. which has changed totally now you know um we do things that we'd spend ages and ages too long sometimes on this just looking at the quality of the material and the end mm-hmm. result so yeah I, th- I think actually in terms of you know f- not technology necessarily but i think finding something new in an old art form or you know, whatever, or trade or craft, if you want to call it, I think you're inevitably going to find that, but also using new materials, you know, things like laser cutting, and um, the, there's a lot of really exciting, um, I guess in a, some way, it is like music again, you know, that, that you know, obviously there's a lot more vinyl being produced now as well, yeah. and so, but at the same time, I, I would imagine there's a lot of kind of modern technology being used to make that vinyl mm-hmm. or make the sound or the way it's recorded. Yeah. Um, you know, so so something on vinyl over there isn't going to be recorded like Abbey Road or something was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's the same with this. This what we're doing. Not saying we're we're not trying. Ally ourselves to Abbey Road, <laughs> but, but but you're revisiting it maybe with a different twist on the way it was originally used. I, I think so, definitely, yeah, absolutely, and also just the things that we're producing, like we were saying about making stuff for ourselves. Well, the, the old letterpress printers would never have made anything for themselves, so all they were, you know, like modern litho printers now, yeah, or digital printers. They're not interested in making things themselves. They're just interested in, you know, the, um, you know, making a living, I guess, and sure, paying sure. off the debts and that. Yeah. that. So, Nick, if somebody's listening to this and maybe with a sense that they've spent far too long staring at a screen, hunched over a desk, which they definitely have, by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, where are we? And they're thinking, you know, what I would really like to explore something something new 
which is maybe something old at the same time. You know, what? where would you suggest they go to kind of scratch that itch and, and get started maybe on a, a new path? Yeah, I'd suggest looking at places like the Heritage Crafts Association. They have a you know, list of makers working in Heritage. That's, that's the UK one. Yeah. yeah, Heritage Crafts, yeah. And they, have, they incidentally have a red list of which letter presses on of, of endangered crafts, you know, um, which I quite like. It's a new thing. Wow. The red list there. Endangered <laughs> crafts. Yeah, now, yeah. now I'm interested in this. And yeah. Because, again, we were talking earlier on, weren't we, that a, a lot of the time maybe these crafts have been in danger of um, disappearing, mm. and, and we were quietly hopeful that maybe we've we've turned a corner and now we're starting to appreciate and preserve some of these. So what's the definition of an endangered craft and, and how prevalent is that? Yeah, well, I guess it's like an endangered species. So, yeah. for example, you know, there was um, a, a couple of examples I heard about. One was a, a wooden ladder maker who was the last wooden ladder maker in Britain. And then also someone that made um, clogs, clog maker. Mm-hmm. And I think there was the last clog maker who you know, skills would have in um, work would have died with him, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it's just like endangered species. You know, is f- suddenly discovering the last of something, or yeah. or very few of them. I mean, yeah. I don't know how many full time letterpress printers there are, but there probably would have been fifty thousand, maybe several hundred thousand. 60, 70 years ago, and I guess there's probably 30 now, 30 full-time letterpress printers. There's a lot of part-time hobby printers, probably several thousand in Britain, but probably full-time, there's probably 30, we think. Getting a nod from Ellen. Great, so I'm just admiring Ellen's got this piece of type that she's got clutching in her hands. That she's been assembling very patiently. Yeah, she's just carried about eight lines of type she's been setting over. And, and it, it, again, that's a classic thing where you think, oh, that looks easy. And then, you know, we get people in workshops who have see Ellen or, or I pick up type and they go, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and you know, it's a, called a printer's pie when it ends up on the floor. <laughs> a printer's pie, great. Printer's My vocabulary is being expanded. <laughs> Oh, there's a massive vocabulary. <laughs> so, Nick, I mean, how optimistic do you feel about the situation in relation to, you know, craft and, and, and tradition? Do you do you think we are turning this corner and that we're learning to preserve and enjoy? Or, well, I suppose I just see my little world really, which looks quite healthy. In terms, I mean, I've just been to a craft show in Cardiff, um, yeah. and and you're in there with, you know, potters and weavers and um, jewellers um, and we're in a building with a potter and a jeweller and not a weaver but a tailor we have a we have one of the only um, tailors in Britain that makes is trained to make women's suits mm-hmm. um, so it all looks quite healthy you know and the other thing that's healthy is actually you know Ellen is 29 and um, has a lot of young people who are, who are um, learning these crafts um, so that all looks quite healthy you know yeah. but I, I'm not convinced I mean I think the red list is really interesting at the Heritage Crafts Association but um, and so um, yeah it feels healthy and you know we've got a, a ways goose which is a ways goose another new word for you there. a ways goose ways goose which is a, a, a it's a kind of medieval word for a gathering of printers like a kind of oh printer's party mm. I, I feel like christmas has come early you have to spell it for you so it's w-a-y-z and then goose a gathering of printers yeah yeah a ways goose. yeah that's, that's wonderful. a good that's a good crossword word there mm. or, or scrabble yeah. Oh gosh. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Watch, watch people's faces when you put that down. <laughs> so we have a Waze Goose in December, which is a gathering of printers, like a market, mm-hmm. um, uh, and we're looking forward to that. So I, th- I guess maybe the the moral is it's there if if you look for it, and it, it's there to join in if you want to. Yeah. It, it is. It is. Yeah. And I, you know, I would encourage anyone to go to 
you know, go to a pottery class, go to a workshop, go to, you know, learn how to sew, learn how to set type, learn how to throw, you know, because I think those things are always brilliant and always, um, you know, thoroughly um, engrossing and amazing experiences. Okay, so maybe to encourage people to start joining in right away, yeah. I think this would be a good time for your creative challenge, Nick. So if anybody's listening who's new to the show, this is the point where I invite my guest to set you, dear listener, a creative challenge. So this is something you can do to stretch yourself creatively and maybe as a person and discover something new within seven days, or at least get started on within seven days of listening to this conversation. So, Nick, what's your creative challenge? Well, we talked about it a bit, a little bit earlier, and the thing that we thought that maybe would be a nice thing to do and is of kind of a, um, achievable by anyone with a kitchen table is to um, just cut a simple lino. You can buy from... Well, any art shop, really. Any local art shop will mm-hmm. sell little bits of vinyl, um, lino. Yeah. And uh, maybe a little set of tools might be five or six pounds. Cut a lino. Think about... I mean, the interesting thing about lino is that it's relief printing. So everything we do is relief printing, which is back to front. So whatever you cut on a lino, when you print it, will be the other way around. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. So don't, don't do all the lettering this way around. No, no. And, and you know, there have been some amazing lino artist um paul peter peach is one that i'd recommend you look at his work because it was quite political uh, he lived in um believe it or not he lived in port talbot oh really in great wales, home just, of, just down the road in wales yeah great home of creative um um people um okay. as wales is in general okay i'll put a link to him in the show notes paul peter peach he married a welsh woman and lived in wales for 30 or 40 years, but he would cut lettering, which is why I mentioned him. Oh, okay. He would cut though, it's quite difficult. Actually, that's a good thing to put into your challenge cut a little bit of let put a little bit put of lettering, lettering into it, it okay. because you have to kind of work out um, how to do it back- backwards, um, which is easy if you're mm. dyslexic because we're very good at that um, generally. Right. <laughs> okay. So, cut a small line, it doesn't have to be very big, you can get very small. Soft lino, um, you can get stuff that's, I think, about eight centimetres square, which is a bit smaller than a coaster beer mat. And uh, cut something. You can use them. Um, you can ink it. You'd have to get some relief ink. A bit more cost, sorry about that. Are your listeners... That's okay, we can, we, we can invest. <laughs> okay, a little bit of relief ink um, and a small roller. Put, put the ink on, put some, you can print pretty much on anything. You can print on cloth, you can print on um, paper, card, and then just use the back of a um, wooden spoon to make the impression. Right. Don't need a fancy 1832 Albion Press. Okay, it's a luxury. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great, that sounds lovely. So, um, and if you do take up the challenge and you would like to share the results, maybe you could leave a comment on the website at 21stcenturycreative.fm. You'll find all the the show notes for every episode there, or maybe a a hashtag on Twitter, um, hashtag 21stcenturycreative, or Facebook, Instagram, wherever. A health and safety note, actually, always cut away from your 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 non-cutting hand, so don't ever cut towards your hand. Right, okay, very, very important tip, especially for clumsy people like me. Keep the plasters nearby just in case. Absolutely. Okay, Nick, thank you so much. This has been a a wonderful journey through the the history um, and landscape of craft and um, traditional arts. So where should people go to find you and the Department of Small Works online and indeed in Bristol? We're bang in the middle of Bristol, about 10 minutes' walk from Temple Mead Station. Um, the website, thedepartmentofsmallworks.co.uk. And uh, the N- Department of Small Works came about because I once did an exhibition in a public toilet, and I thought, if I ever had a company, I will call it the Department of Small Works. <laughs> um, so that's what happened. I said, that came about. Okay. Side. 
So you've got two, and is there a site? The other one is the letterpresscollective.org, which is just specifically letterpress and the department's a little bit wider because it includes the books about the bike journeys and things. Great. Okay, so I do, encu- and I do encourage you to visit. Um, I'll put the links in the show notes as usual. Um, there's some really amazing-looking workshops that I'm going to participate in soon, and there's also some really gorgeous things in the shop, so do go and check that out. Um, it's, it's some really quite unusual um, examples of the printer's art. So once again, Nick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. That was, it was fun. Thank you. You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast, at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like my help applying the ideas in the show to your own situation, you're welcome to join us in the 21st Century Creative Patreon group at patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. And I'll be in touch with you as soon as I've reviewed your answers. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.